Welcome back to the FKT Podcast, brought to you by Barrel Test Lab. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today we're chatting with Chris Fisher. Join us and hear what it's like to complete the Colorado 14ers in winter. And thank you, Merrill, for supporting not only this podcast, but the fastestknowntime.com website and the FKT community. Merrill invites you to put yourself and their new Skyfire 2 shoe, their newest, lightest, and fastest trail running shoe, to the test on your next adventure. It's available over at Merrill.com. So today we're going to talk about your winter 14ers. And 14ers list in general just has a really long history of FKTs in a sense. And it's pretty, you can go down a rabbit hole reading about the history of 14ers. Uh, I kind of did when I was researching this. Uh, But it really is only, like I think, five years ago that somebody did the entire list in the winter. And that was Andrew Hamilton, I believe. So Single winter. Single winter, yeah. Single winter. And so... I'm kind of curious, first of all, like why you decided to do these in a single winter, because I don't think you've done them in the summer. And also the obvious question, how did the weather impact doing this crazy mountaineering (laughs) list in the wintertime? Yeah. So about two years prior, I was actually looking at trying to ski them all and going for that record. And long story short, that got put on the back burner. I ended up not pursuing it. And uh, just kind of started getting into summer and chasing at different FKTs around Utah, Colorado, and whatnot. And then back in early December, me and Erin, she does a lot of FKTs too. Um, She's my partner. We were down in Guadalupe doing a a long 24-hour outing um, through the National Park down there in Texas. And on the way back home, we were listening to Andrew's podcast about his winter 14er experience and, you know, being the first one to do the single single calendar winter – like a 14 or accomplishment or whatever. And so immediately I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. <laughs> there was like no, hesi- no hesitation at all. This was like four weeks prior to me starting. I was, I was like, man, I had a pretty beat up foot from that 24 hour effort. So I went home, got an x-ray. It was all good. I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to go for the single winner 14 or uh, FKT. And so that's what I did. Um, and it kind of made more sense to me to do it in this style. It's more like a mountaineering style than just to go for the ski record. Uh, I ski a lot, do a lot of backcountry skiing, but some of those peaks are like super gnarly to ski. And I felt mm-hmm. that going after the peaks, just to climb and get down without dying made more sense, like with my <laughs> technical abilities, you know? So right, right. that's kind of where that all started. Yeah, I usually pick projects like pick them up out of out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, that sounds fun and inspiring. Let's do that. Right. But the weather, um, you know, jumping into the weather question, it was as you know, um, maybe as you know, out west it was pretty much record breaking everywhere for uh, yeah. snow. Colorado didn't exactly hit record breaking. They're really close down the San Juans and the Elks, from what I understand, and above average, pretty much everywhere else for the most part. So like Andrew, when he did it, he did it on a low winter and that just has different difficulties when it comes to being able to trigger a persistent slab easier because there's less snow on top, uh, like bonding or like bridging the slab. So I got really lucky with like the San Juans, you know, they got so much snow and it never stopped snowing really that the deep persistent layer that is usually, you know, super dangerous in Colorado pretty much got buried and was like almost untriggerable in many aspects. So I was able Mm. to go down there and just sweep through the entire San Juans in like a week. And that was pretty much what made my project happen. Um, It probably wouldn't have been possible without that weather window. I mean, it went green light after being orange for, you know, 
couple weeks um, just because of how much snow they've been getting. But yeah, all those persistence like slabs got buried. One of the things Andrew mentioned in his podcast, him and Andrea, they mentioned that to do this, you should do it on a low snow year because of certain reasons or whatever, right? And now mm-hmm. that I did it on a big snow year, I think if you have good skiing abilities, you can actually do them faster because there's more snow and more coverage. So you can skin up, ski down and get mm-hmm. them done quicker. I don't know if someone's going to be able to do it in like medium average winter because there'll be just too many persistent slabs and mm-hmm. a lot more dice rolled. I mean, people like to roll dice here and there, but I don't know. Staying alive is kind of key. <laughs> yeah. If you want to finish uh, staying alive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe for our listeners who aren't super familiar, um, like with skiing or, or whatever, can you talk about like what you mean by persistent slabs and like why that would be um, detrimental? Right. So persistent slab is when the snow it snows, right? And then it doesn't snow for a handful of days and it causes facets to form on the top layer. And so then when it snows again on top of those facets, that creates a weak layer. And then you have the ability to a human's weight or more snow on top of that weak layer can break it and all the snow on top of that weak layer will slide. And so here in Colorado, that's kind of like our main problem with uh, avalanche problems is persistent slab. We just get a lot of different cycles of high pressure, low pressure. And so like during those two or three high pressure days, it'll form facets and then there's a new weak layer. You know, um, that's kind of how that goes here. It, it happens everywhere. But here in Colorado, especially, it's so much colder, mostly uh, compared to other places. So those layers don't bond until later spring for the most part so Mm. once there's a weak layer it's pretty much there until late you know spring starts when it gets warmer and the water can trickle down and bond those layers right right thank you um so you also mentioned you know technical skills so i'm kind of yeah that was like kind of my first thought because i mean i've done a few 14ers and for the most part a lot of them are just you know scree slogs and so winter must have made this like an actual like mountaineering type of effort and so I'm kind of curious like how it differs like what kind of mountaineering skills obviously you skied but what other kind of like technical skills did you need to employ and like did you is that what you consider like your strong suit like did you already have all these technical skills or were you kind of like learning these in process yeah so I was definitely learning them in process for the most part um with my three and a half four years now of backcountry skiing I've climbed some steep couloirs with crampons stuff like that. Never really done much more than that. Never scrambled on really snowy, icy rock with crampons, axes, and all that kind of stuff. So um, I was definitely learning those skills along the way. Um, And like you said, you know, a lot of them are like scree slogs. And it's kind of like that in the winter too. A lot of them are just snow slogs. I mean, you can do Mm -hmm. over half of them without really getting into any technical terrain or really any avalanche danger. And so, you know, half of them, they're long days with a lot of snow um and slogging and you know you need flotation in the winter so either you're using snowshoes or skis and Erin and i she actually joined me for the first half of the project until she got frostbite and so we were on yeah kind of a bummer we were on snowshoes the whole time and that was a beating because i'm a skier mm-hmm. and she's not near as much of a skier as i am so i like all right we'll do snowshoes when we can and it was a beating i mean you just sink so deep into the snow half the time and it just takes so much energy. I realized within like three days that all these climbs are going to be at least two to three, if not more 
times longer than it would be in the summer. Like mm-hmm. something that would take me three hours in the summer took six, seven, eight, nine in the winter, Ugh. if not more, you know, yeah. um, especially with longer approaches because of snowy roads and closed roads and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to like the technical skill side, you know, besides like the ridge traverses and just scrambles I've done over the past couple of years, like in dry conditions, that's kind of all I had was class three, four, like low fifth scrambling, um, like abilities, I guess. I mean, I've been mm-hmm. on ropes a little bit, but I'm not like proficient at them by any means. And so mm-hmm. I definitely picked up a lot of that stuff. Like on Capitol, that was our first like super technical peak. Um, the knife edge, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You just stay on the knife and hopefully the snow doesn't break. <laughs> it pretty much stomp out a cornice the whole time. So like you move a few right. steps, stop the cornice, move a few steps, stop off the cornice. And then unlike the summer, you have to go a ridge proper to the summit compared to like going around and up a gully. And mm-hmm. so, and we up climbed, I actually climbed it with a friend, Matt Randall, who does a lot of like big expedition stuff, like in Pakistan and wherever else. Um, and we carried ropes. We propelled like three or four of the cruxes off the of Capitol and did down climb them because they were just too sketchy and anything if you mess up you're just gone um right and after doing that was the first technical peak like i mentioned and after doing that just jump in with both feet right (laughs) i was like well you know i was like there's no way it's gonna get any harder than this right right it it did did. um the wilson el diente traverse was the next one i did that solo that was a ridge that i've never been on before um that took i think five hours to get across um slogging along a really exposed ridge above hanging cliffs having to dig out snow find the holds find where your feet are going stuff like that and that's kind of how it went for all the technical peaks uh the maroon bells were probably the hardest out of all of them Mm -hmm. um andrew joined me for that and it was a 21 hour day uh we out and back the ridge traverse and we used ropes for several sections and yeah it was full on i mean 45 40 to 50 mile an hour winds the whole way across the ridge cold long <laughs> bogging yeah. yeah oh man so, i can't so all in all, so all in all yeah i pretty much built all my winter mountaineering skills besides the skiing aspect through the project wow that's pretty impressive <laughs> appreciate it <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like yeah i mean i guess maybe there's some benefit to like you don't know what you don't know until you get in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, if, if I would have known how much this was really going to take out of me, I would have probably second guessed it. But at the beginning, right. I was like, there's no way this can be like that hard. I mean, it can't be that hard. Right. And right. then sure enough, I found out pretty quickly that this was going to be really fucking hard. <laughs> oh, actually, it can be that hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So did you, with all this technical stuff and, and the weather i mean obviously you mentioned your partner got frostbite did you have any like other like close calls or like major like wow that was maybe had you second guess like that i'm even going to be doing this the closest calls we had were actually the last day uh when we Mm -hmm. climbed pyramid so i had andrew with me on that and then two other dudes and those guys ended up turning around around like 13 2 or something like that while me and andrew continued on um we were triggering like wind loaded slabs along the ridge line that were northwest facing and at the the last climb uh, pyramid, you're on this like amphitheater type of thing. And you tr- usually traverse ac- on the west face, you traverse across like a ledge system and go up the ridge. 
anyways, the whole Northwest uh, aspects were completely loaded. And so there was no way we were going to be able to do that. And we had to find our own route. But there were several like gullies that we had to climb prior to getting to that point to where we knew we were going to trigger these slabs. And we just had to be like conscious of when that was going to happen. And so we'd both kind of like guinea pig up and down these things, um, knowing to hold on to like the cliffs and the slides or like the sides of the, the coulard and just being extra cautious about where our steps were going to be, you know, take it, stomp a few steps out into the middle and hopefully it breaks. Um, every single one of them eventually broke, but we were always like mm. in safe enough spots to where we were confident that we were going to get swept away. Um, some people may disagree with that. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> We did it, and we had to do to get up top. We got to the top bowl, and we realized there was no way we were going to be able to take, like, the standard winter route. And so we found, like, a sneak up the southwest or, yeah, southwest-facing cliffs, and we made it. And so, you know, the whole whole time, the entire project, I had no idea if I was going to finish this thing. Um, I had this weird feeling that if I wasn't going to finish it, it was going to be because of the last climb. And I had no idea what the last climb was going to be until, like, the last week. Um, and sure enough on the last climb, there were, you know, we, me and Andrew gave each other like a 50, 50% chance of maybe making it. We are like, mm. yeah, we may or may not make it, but we can't die. So let's keep going and see what happens. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no really like close calls or anything. I mean, we were pretty aware of what was happening around us. Um, so yeah, uh, we yeah. used our skills and abilities to mitigate okay. the risk and all that kind of stuff. Um, so were there ever yeah. situations where you were like, you know, this is getting to the point where it's too risky and you bailed and like turn back, come back later? So I only bailed one time and that was day two because mm-hmm. we didn't bring flotation. We It mm-hmm. snowed two days prior. We didn't realize how much it snowed. And one week before that, people were walking. Uh, this was the Crestones. And people were doing this with no flotation, and it was completely dry. And so we went in thinking, all right, it's going to probably be pretty similar. What's like eight inches of snow? It ended up being like two feet of snow. And mm-hmm. we slogged for like eight hours to get to the base of the peaks. And we ended up turning around because we didn't bring our flotation, no snowshoes, no skis. Anyways, we learned a lot of lessons that day. Me and Erin, because she was still with me, you know, we, we started this project together. Um, we learned a lot of lessons. And that was the only day I ever turned around a peak. And I wouldn't even consider I turned around on the peak because I didn't even make it like, but barely above tree line. <laughs> you know? right, right. So, uh, yeah, you know, besides that, I never really thought I was getting too close to pushing like dangerous limits. Um, you know, during like the technical scrambles and exposed ridge lines and using crampons and ice axe, even when I'm by myself or with others, I was never uncomfortable with what I was doing even with stuff that was harder than I've ever done before. But I was always like conscious of what the consequence was if I were to mess up. And so mm-hmm. it pretty much put in, put an ultra focused perspective into my mind to where I was making sure my hands were solid, making sure my feet were solid and never, you know, just not thinking more than just once about it. Like we're thinking this through, not here to die. <laughs> it's going right, to be right. slow but we're going to make this happen. So yeah, never really got scared or anything. So it seems like you've mentioned Andrew several times. Um, so it sounds like he accompanied you on quite a few of the peaks and maybe you had some other people as well. You mentioned you started with Aaron. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, kind of your support team and like what kind of a role these people played in right. your success. 
Yeah, so Erin started the project out with me. Um, she climbed 27 of the peaks with me, which is half, pretty much half the list, a little less. Mm -hmm. But she got frostbite right around, I think it was Blanca Ellingwood. And then it popped up the next day on Little Bear. After So we just did like a fourth, our first fourth class scramble in the winter. Her confidence was getting built high. And then it kind of got shut down because she got frostbite. And the doctor told her to not push it because if it, you know, froze again, she'd probably lose the finger or whatever. Um, so that was a bummer. Uh, we were kind of just self-supporting each other the whole way until then. And then she kind of jumped into the role of supporting um, here and there. There were certain times where I was by myself the entire time, you know, for a week at a time. But whenever she was able, she would come back in and help drive or, you know, even walk or skin the approaches with me. And so even besides those 27 peaks, I mean, she probably did another five to eight, maybe even 10 approaches with me um, just until she was comfortable enough to turn around, you know. Um, and then I had another buddy join me for Chicago Basin, um, Scott. Uh, he shows Chicago Basin. It's a 42-mile-ish out and back in the middle of the Wimanucci and San Juans. Um, no one's out there. He joined me for the first 15 miles in, and then he took his ski boots off, and his feet were so fucked up from frostbite two days prior. I mean, mm -hmm. his toes were like blue and black so he was like yeah man, i think i'm gonna turn around i was like dude i probably wouldn't even started if i were you <laughs> so yeah i did i did the rest of that day by myself and then my buddy brent joined me for the last three miles you know skinning out of purgatory um so i had a couple buddies there and then i probably climbed many of them by myself something like that maybe a little more um andrew joined for four he joined me on longs and then joined me for three of the uh, three of the elks join me for the maroon bells and the last peak pyramid which were those two were definitely the hardest outings of the entire project it was really cool to have him hop in and join me on something that you know i'm going after his record and you know it's not really about the record it's more about the journey of accomplishing this and becoming the second person to climb a ball in a single winter but it was super right. cool for him to hop in and help me you know get across the hardest pieces of the entire puzzle um so yeah, he played a huge part there at the end, and it was really cool to have him. You know, for someone like him who's the 14er guy, you know, everybody looks up to that dude for the right. most part that's climbing 14ers, and he's been my hero since I moved here to Colorado, 14er hero at least, you know, and so it's like mm -hmm. sick. I'm climbing gnarly mountains with a guy I've looked up to for the past four years, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, I had company on Stones when I went back, I realized a couple of buddies were heading up for the needle and potentially the peak the next day. And so I ended up meeting them up close to the base of the needle and uh, climbed that with them. Um, and then went on and did the peak by myself. That was Rob Barlow. He's done a lot of, a uh, lot of 14 years. I think he's around like 600 summits total or something like that. Mm. Um, did Nolan's last year. Nick Medica was there. He's going for Nolan's this year. He climbed Castle Conundrum with me as well. And then Dan Broski, I think that's how you say his last name, was there. Um, so I climbed a peak with them. Um, my buddy Brent Herring, we climbed Snuffles together because he's down in the San Juans. He decided to join right right before Capitol. Capitol, I did with Matt Randall. So there's like a few names scattered throughout there. I think I mentioned every single one that joined me right there. Um, Aaron definitely played the biggest part, whether it was climbing the peaks with me or approaches or driving and sleeping and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, those people all played 
awesome parts and really excited that they were able to join. I, I think that's one of the really cool things about FKTs in general is that you like frequently it's like somebody's attempting to break someone's record and the record holder comes out and helps them do it. Like, I just love yeah. that about FKTs like in general. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It shows true humility too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that we're all just like seeing what's possible. You know, it's, it's not necessarily about direct competition. It's about pushing ourselves and seeing what's possible. Yeah. Pretty cool community, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of um, Andrew's record, so you took, I think, over 12 days off of that record and you did it in like 72 days. Like, did you have an actual time frame in mind when you started this? Where is that yeah. like, was that your goal to do it in 72 days or or how did that play out? Yeah. So my goal is actually 50 days. I was okay. going out like, all right, I'm going to do this in 50 days. Um, I climbed 26 peaks in the first, I think 13 or 14 days, something like that. I've got my numbers probably a little wrong, but it was something right around that. And then I got food poisoning and that took oh, no. me out for nine days because I had food poisoning for three and a half. And then I had to go home to Texas, which was already planned for my grandpa's funeral. And another reason was to trade my truck in for a van. Um, mm -hmm. Three weeks into the project, me and Aaron were sleeping out of the back of my Tacoma for the first three weeks. Really brutal, really cold. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, after that nine, 10 ish days off my mindset of grind every day and get it done in 50 or so turned into, all right, I'm just going to finish this in winter. Um, as long as I finish by the last day of winter, I'll still have the FKT. But at this point, it's more so about, you know, the journey and what I'm doing out here rather than just going as fast as possible. So oh it turned into more of like, you know, like I climbed the first 14, 15 days straight, no rest. And then it turned into climb three or four days, rest two or three, depending on the weather. So it was a lot of weather window chasing. And I mean, I only climbed in a few storms, like less than five storms total. Uh, because of that weather window chasing. Um, so that's kind of how I went about it after about midway through. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of curious about how you approach that. Like if you were just literally like, I mean, I don't know if you live in your van or if you have a, a home to go back to or, you know, whether you were just like literally camping out and climbing every day, the weather was good or if you were like going back and, and resting off and on or, or how that was playing out. Yeah, well, I have a home base here in Breck. Uh, my uncle's lived here for almost 30 years now, built a house a while back. Long story short, when we were in the area, we'd come back here and sleep for a night um, before going back out to the saw watch or wherever it was close enough to wake up early and drive to. And that kind of got shut down pretty quickly because you can only do that so many peaks. Um, and then, yeah, we lived out of the truck for pretty much three weeks straight besides a couple of days here and there. And then once I traded in for the van, I mean, I think I slept maybe one or two more days in my uncle's house. I kind of just stayed in the van and stayed in locations of where I knew I'd be climbing when the weather window opened. Right, right. So how did you decide on the order of the peaks? What I mean, it sounded like maybe you didn't have a plan starting out because you didn't know what your last peak was going to be. Were you just like, hey, the weather's good in the sawage, I'm going there? Or like, how right. did that go? Yeah, so there was no true specific order uh we started with pikes and like i might as well start with a somewhat easy peak um you know there's nothing technical about it and you can avoid avalanche danger and so we did that and then after getting our asses kicked up on the crest stones day two and being really getting really humbled by the snow and how hard this was really going to be 
we transitioned into the saw watch where it was much drier. Um, we pretty much did the whole saw watch mosquito 10 mile within the next like week, um, with multi peak pushes, um, kind of like broke, like a broken Nolan's type of thing. And so it was super dry over there. We kind of knocked all those out and then it turned into, okay, the weather's good here. I'm going there. You know, we got into the sand grays. I pretty much climbed all the sand grays. And then the last day on the sand grays, the avalanche forecast turned to green down in the San Juans. And so I was like, all right, well, that's where I'm going next. You know, um, I got to go to the San Juans, take the, take advantage of this weather window, avalanche window, and just go bang them out. And that's what I did. I went down there. I did pretty much all of those by myself besides snaffles. Um, yeah, all of them by myself. A lot of really long, hard days out there. But I skied a lot, so that was cool. This is right after Aaron got frostbite, and so I transitioned from snowshoes back to skis, and things became much easier and faster. And I was like, oh, well, this is kind of fun now, actually. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, I am not a fan of snowshoes. <laughs> I hope you never put them they're on awful. again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're awful. If you can ski, it's like you might as well just ski. Yeah. Right. Even if the snow conditions are horrible, skis are still keen compared to snowshoes, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. Definitely. But yeah, no no real plans, you know, just kind of following the weather. I had a couple buddies or weathermen, and they pretty much it's all they do. And so they kind of gave me their updates and like where I should go, what I should do, what these peaks forecast looks like with their wind, temperature, snow, all that kind of stuff. And so they played a huge part. I, I guess I forgot to mention them. Uh, Seth Linden and Chris Tomer, both dudes here in Colorado that do like high altitude uh, forecasting, snow forecasting, and all that kind of good stuff. They played a huge part in helping me with weather window watching. Those are good friends to have. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I saw on one of your posts uh, when I was researching this that you said you logged like about 611 miles for this. I think is the number you quoted. Do you know how that? Com- yeah. Do you know how that compares to the summer mileage? Like, you know, like I said, I had never climbed them all in the summer. Um, right. But I think it's a couple hundred more. Oof. Yeah. 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 And then the vert's also more because you got to start lower in a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. It's like about a hundred K more in the winter. Um, but a lot more miles, I think. Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, even though I'm actually yeah. about to try to go for the summer record. I should probably figure those numbers out. <laughs> oh, nice. I'll be, I'll be curious to follow that along. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, um, I couldn't find an actual, I mean, obviously I'm sure it just varies depending on the route you take. So, but I was just kind of curious right. what like it, a general average was for the summer because i would imagine you had to park like miles from summer trailheads in some cases and walk up roads yeah i mean that's kind of how it went um yeah a lot of them besides like like quandary is the easiest you can park at the trailhead go up go down and it's about the same amount of time that would be in the summer all the Mm -hmm. other ones the approaches are much longer like for huron for example there's a road that you can drive all the way to Winfield and it's like a dirt road, no four wheel drive really needed. And I think that was seven miles each way just on that road in the winter besides the climb. So it was like a 22 mile day, seven miles on road, seven miles back on road while climbing the peak. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff like that. You know, it was pretty ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's just next level. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, g- good times for sure. 
Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about this. This is really fascinating and I'm really stoked to see you do it in the summer now too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. You can follow his adventures at Chris J. Fish on Instagram. Thanks again to Merrill Test Lab for supporting the show. Be sure to check out their new Skyfire 2 shoe at Merrill.com. Thank you.